Hey everybody, just wanted to quickly let you know at the top of the show that despite the hype, I was unable uh, to bring back the enhanced edition of the podcast uh, with pictures. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just, you know, quietly keep listening to the podcast. If you would like to watch a a video of this interview along with the pictures I was going to put in the enhanced version, you can do that at my YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin. Otherwise, uh, just stay where you are, keep doing what you're doing to enjoy uh, a boring old regular podcast about a guy that did movie special effects and now builds soft robots. Here we go. Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am coming to you today live from, this isn't live, but I am coming to you today from Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Studios with Matthew Borgatti, a robot designer, a robot designer uh, who has worked on special effects for movies, uh, as well as his current career as a designer of soft robots. We're going to find out what all of that means, but first let me say welcome to the show, Matthew. Thank you. Matthew or Matt? Matt's fine. First question, Matthew or Matt? Matt is fine. Okay. Robot designer, special effects. I guess, first of all, how did you, I mean, how did you get involved in special effects? Let's start there. Let's, <laughs> yeah. Let's see if that's early enough. Maybe we um, have to back up. Uh, it, it was actually, I always wanted to be an inventor. I mean, I, I wanted to be a ton of different things. Uh, but when I started uh, school, I, I went to school for design. And I was thinking I'd be hacking on, you know, real stuff, making making things and objects and making stuff move. And there were opportunities for it, but a lot of the projects were sort of up in the air and very conceptual, whereas like you find a woman passed out in the forest, she has some sort of medical condition, invent a device that would cure this condition. Wait. Slowed. I have so many questions already. Whose whose project was that? Like when you say there was a project like that? Uh that was my sophomore year uh design principles uh final project mm-hmm. we just got a piece of paper that was like create a medical device that solves a problem knowing nothing about medicine or right. so you're i mean what what did you study was it design was it like engineering was it industrial both? design so is that both i don't know yeah so it's i studied communications i don't know anything <laughs> i don't even know like what actual studying looks like so yeah so what is that so i went to the rhode island school of design for industrial design which is pretty much between mechanical engineering and industrial, you know, high high manufacturing, there's this area where you try to bring together what the design is actually going to look like and work like with how it feels and what it's supposed to do, mm-hmm. where you have to figure out, well, if a person's going to hold this, maybe it needs to be made with a soft plastic. I'm going to talk with our molding guys and see if how many millions of dollars more that's going to cost to be this versus that. And some areas it's, some oh areas it's, I'm knocking the mic. Uh, some areas it's, a lot of uh, really getting down in the nitty gritty details of like how many things can you shave off to you know save a dollar? Because for Walmart, if they make a million of the thing, if you save a penny, you save a million mm-hmm. million pennies. That's not that much, but you get the general yeah, yeah. idea. <laughs> These things work at scale. Yeah. So, what is like the primary skill? I'm just, I just, yeah, it's just yeah. a world I know nothing about. Like, what is the primary skill you need to do that? Is it is is it knowledge of chemistry, physics, electronics, or is it's, it just production and overseeing that? Like, what is it that uh, you need to know to do all these to do these things? It, it's actually on that art engineering like razor's edge where uh, 
what you need to do is is take in a lot of this information about how stuff gets made and the kind of plastics that are out there and how everyday products are manufactured from packaging to their the actual plastic like look being able to look at the tool marks on the bottom of a recyclable thing to figure out what plastic that is cool and then also to bring in like a lot of drawing and and illustration and design skills for understanding how a person is going to want that thing mm-hmm. because your job is often to take here's a mechanism like this this is a drill mechanism someone made a real skookum brushless dc motor that can make a small drill super powerful now how are you going to say that in a package for people who don't know anything about brushless dc motors so it's like the design and not only design the thing but then thinking it through all the way to like how it's actually going to get used yeah because someone has to create like the has to create the design files has to make that digital sculpture for how those bits come together is there could you think of a product that's like a particularly good example of that that like exemplifies these things we're talking about that people might have seen macbook air macbook air because this is an incredibly complicated machine but you open it up it's actually like a beautiful design device And it present like all the oh, great example. I'm, I'm already getting it. <laughs> yeah. So you studied that. Studied that with the intention of going into special effects. I had no idea. So at the time, I just knew I liked building stuff. I also liked illustration. That was a majority of my portfolio at the time. I did a little bit in comics when I was a kid, and I had some things published in little magazines, and you know, got a bunch of. Um, Magic cards that I made up uh, as a kid, uh, rejected awesome. by Wizards of the Coast. Awesome. It was great. It. I got a stamped rejection letter. I it's still when we framed. Said special effects and robots. That <laughs> that was going to be as nerdy as this podcast got, but you just you just brought up Magic the Gathering and yeah. illustrate fan illustrations. Fan for illustrations. Magic. Yeah. Were you also designing the cards though. Um, I made cards. So what I did, um, I super nerdy. Uh, so I, I yeah. thought that they you're, they you're amongst friends here. They should have a separate race of dracoids, obviously underground dragons. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so that they they would be magic users. I had all of this I had it planned out as a 10-year-old kid. There is a bit kid, of engineering and art in that though because there's like <laughs> You know, there's a design element of it yes. where, like, all the pieces have to fit together and, like, I don't know, the game, maybe I'm reaching here, but, like, yeah. I feel like the gameplay design is a lot of moving pieces, not unlike a machine, and, like, you got to figure out a way totally. to, like, integrate with that and make everything uh, better without overwhelming it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very similar. You don't have to worry about it as much about loopholes as you do as a games designer mm-hmm. because people don't tend to find loopholes in your drill or something. Right, right. They tend to be a little bit more precious about a drill than they are Monopoly. But you still have to be using the same kind of design thinking where you're like, how is a person going to use this? What if they drop it? What's the everyday use of this thing going to be like? And I'm going to have to make a physical object that I hand to somebody with no experience or no knowledge. I can't guarantee any knowledge exactly like a game where you're going to try to make the rule set and the ways you use it as self-contained as possible so that somebody doesn't return and be like, I, I, I didn't put anything into it, but I didn't get anything out and it's your fault. Did you admire special effects as a kid? I mean, everyone, you know, is wowed by some special effects at some point because we all watch movies. But is that something you were particularly into? Because that oh, is yeah. like a really, there's a, particularly, uh, you appear to be about the same age as me. Like when yeah. we were growing up, special effects were like robots and monsters and like, oh, yeah. they were like design things. And I love CGI in movies too, but like they were like, you know, physical things that had yep. like uh, a little bit of, pre- is that something you like that really mm-hmm. spoke to you as a kid? What, yeah. is there any special effect or any movies you can remember like really sticking with you oh yeah uh bicentennial man weirdly oh, enough. oh yeah, yeah yeah which adam savage worked on oh cool um bicentennial man i thought was really great for the makeup and the effects i was always into like mega man style or the 
seeing the cross section of how something works like when Mega Man gets a new power mm-hmm. you see this little cross section of yeah. like here's where he'd hold the blades for the cut oh yeah you know? yeah so like those Star Trek books with like just kind totally, of like the, the ships yes. bisected and showing like all the I not, had the Star yeah. Wars Guide to Vehicles and Vessels right, I had that right. one and so I was super into that. And then... Um, Bicentennial Man, for those that don't remember, a very <laughs> sappy... I've actually super never sappy. seen it, but yeah. sort of notoriously sappy <laughs> Robin Williams uh, movie where he's an android who learns how to love, I Lear- think. I think it's actually based on Philip K. Dick, I want to say. Is that I, right? I think so. So the, the general premise is he learns how to be a person, eventually trades all of his organs for ones that could also be in a person where like organ and grafting technology and all of that get better. And he wants to be a real person. It's very Pinocchio. And then at the end of it, it's very sad because the the Senate, the the Galactic Senate, says we you cannot be a person. And he dies, but he was a person. Oh my god! So what was the special effect that stood out <laughs> from that movie? Yeah. So there there were a bunch of scenes of people like repairing Robin Williams, where there was like a fake you know pull apart head or they'd put a screwdriver into the side of him and adjust things and you could oh, see his eyes dilate cool yeah. and they had generations of suits because as he like modified himself he'd become like a little more human every time mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. there were just dozens of different you know full body props and maquettes and and cool things going on with it that just stuck in my mind as a kid is like i someone's doing that someone's making those okay so you graduate from risd which by the way for those that don't know i don't want to put you on the spot but it's like one of the that's like one of the places to go for art and engineering and yeah yeah the place where those two meet yeah so you it's, graduate from there yeah it's not knowing that you're going to go into special effects mm-hmm. ha- what happens after you graduate it's actually while i was in school so the the project i was talking about earlier that i i sort of was frustrated by um just coming up with a medical device off the top of your head i was like i want to deal with real problems that like have some teeth where if i screw up it's going to tell me because if the end result is a, i'm given a presentation to some folks that's not really going to tell me if i did a good job solving problems that's going to tell me if I did a good job making swooshy graphics Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, coming up with a great, you know, presentation, doing the right tone of voice. And so I applied to a bunch of places that do traditional engineering, but had some robotics to them. And so I applied for Boston Dynamics, still have that rejection letter. It said in, in no, no unclear terms, come back when you're a real engineer. (laughs) Why are you not, I mean, help me, I'm just not in this world. Why did they, why were they so rude? Why, what made you not a real engineer? (laughs) Not that you're not, but why did they accuse you of not being a real engineer? Well, there, um, there are different grades of engineer. There's like licensed engineer where you've done an apprenticeship and all of that. And then out of school, you get a certification so you can test for a certification, almost like passing the bar in law school. And then there's the general field of engineering, solving problems in a certain way. And many places focus on simulation electronics programming to figure out, like, you'll have uh, a general purpose off-the-shelf robotic arm, like an ABB robotic arm, just a really well-engineered, really precise robotic arm. And dozens of different robotics companies might make a physical part or two to go on the end of it, but a lot of their energy is spent figuring out how to make it go certain places at a certain speed get the most out of Mm -hmm. it that they're doing factory automation stuff and they want they they don't need a designer they don't need somebody figuring out how to make a macbook smoother they really want somebody who's crunching numbers and doing simulations and so most places that are related to those fields have a more of a mindset of well we can teach engineers to design but we can't teach designers to engineer so (laughs) Mm -hmm. so that you were just a little you weren't a pure blood. You're you were you were you were mixed. Yeah, half half blood. So okay, 
So you didn't get into Boston Dynamics, which sounds like a prestigious company. I don't. I, <laughs> yeah, they make the big dog, that robot that people oh, keep yeah, kicking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have seen that video. It's pretty great. Okay, so oh, so you're not in there. Yeah. That, then, then what? So uh, I applied for a bunch of places, and my my search field got broader and broader and broader. You know, took the quotation marks off, and so I uh, applied for like jobs at Wet Design, which does. Um, there's a beep. There's that beep. There's something in my apartment that is beeping every 15 minutes. By apartment, I mean Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Studios. Uh, so something is beeping just it's every 15 Simi minutes. Valley it's been Studio. going on for a week or two now. We can't quite figure it out. I know what you're going to say. It is not the smoke alarm. I replaced the batteries. I assure you, it is not the smoke alarm. But let's focus on robots. For the, <laughs> I've, I've now had a robot engineer come and look at the problem. We are really stumped. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, what were you talking about before my apartment really interrupted? So uh, search got broader and broader. And then I finally uh, started applying to special effects places, places that did straight down the line movie props. And what year is this? Uh, 2004? So, 2004? Because CG, CG, pretty established in 2004. Yeah. But there's still people making, you know, stuff for movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, you might it might come loop back around later, but um, there's a, a bunch of traditional effects, all traditional effects movies that have been funded on Kickstarter recently. Oh, One of them being Harbinger Down from the people who uh, did all the effects for Alien vs. Predator and stuff like that. Which is a movie you worked on. Yeah. Is, what was the first movie you worked on? So, um, it, interesting story. Um, <laughs> a podcast is no place for an interesting story. <laughs> what am I doing? So... Uh, when I finally finished up my search or when I, I sent out tons and tons of letters and then I got kept getting rejected and so I made an actual portfolio out of it, uh, I got a response back from the character shop run by Rick Lazzarini, who uh, was Pizza the Hut in Spaceballs. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking to see if I have Spaceballs on the shelf behind me. I don't think I do. Oh. I don't think I have Spaceballs on a digital format, but like, I definitely have a VHS of it yeah. somewhere. I love that movie so much. And so I had a little portfolio of projects that I made. I sent physical portfolios out, and that might have been the crux of it. Um, and I got into the shop where we were. We had all these dead snakes and things in the shop, and they were like, we need people to live cast snakes. Well, not live cast. They were dead, frozen snakes. And they were like, we need a buttload of snakes. And we need people to make molds and to paint them and to uh, make animatronic components to put inside of like striking snakes and ones that shoot venom and all sorts of stuff. And at the time it was called Pacific Air Flight 121. Uh-oh. Until we got a call, uh, you know, some some interesting uh, gossip was coming down the pipeline that the star Sam Jackson was demanding that it be renamed to Snakes on a Plane. So you worked on the snakes. On yeah. Some might argue the stars of the film. <laughs> Snakes on a Plane. Yeah. So what's going on behind the scenes there? Because that movie was one of the first kind of like <laughs> internet yeah. phenomenon sort of like meme type things where like people were really totally. going crazy for it before it came out. Were you guys aware of that behind the scenes in the Snake Workshop? A little bit. So we knew that um, the studio was trying to make like a serious horror movie. Like there was some conflict and clashes on what the tone of the movie was going to be. And many movies, like if you think... Movies are like a, an efficient engine that runs like clockwork. You've never worked on a film. Like they're, mm -hmm. they're being, many films are being changed up until the last minute. And so they were trying to decide on the tone of it. And we actually found out sort of the time at which people uh, at the studio knew it was an internet meme. When they started coming around to the Sam Jackson point of view, 
Because when they stopped arguing and they were like, can we can we get more snakes? Can we get more like, can you just give us rubber snakes? We're good. We think we want to do this scene where we like dump a pile of snakes on somebody. We think we want to do the scene where a guy's getting a blowjob and a snake bites him in the dick. Did you work on the the blowjob (laughs) snake dick scene? I was going to add that is a very memorable moment in snakes on a plane. So uh, it actually gets into a little bit of the the frustrating nitty gritty of the effects world. But uh, the head, uh, the person who was doing effects on the film end, who was making sure the effects worked in the shots they were trying to get, and Rick Lazzarini, the head of the shop, didn't see eye to eye on where they wanted the film and the props to go. Mm-hmm. And over time, what actually happened, and it's how I ended up having to scramble to find the next job, was essentially the studio said, okay, whatever snakes are done, deliver them to us. Whatever ones are, are not, don't worry about it. We're going to replace all the snakes with digital snakes anyway. Mm-hmm. And all snakes? <laughs> Um, there were a couple of physical snakes, like the boa constrictor, uh, the the giant, or anaconda, the giant snake that falls through the through the glass of the, the Ooh, ceiling of the plane. I gotta tell you, I kind of only remember the dick snake. <laughs> so, but wait, okay. so you made snakes that made didn't snakes. they didn't end up making it in the movie? Yes, although they did make it to Comic Con. What was really funny is the the year that uh, Comic Con happened, as when the movie was released, I saw props that I worked on decorating the floor of the snakes on the plane oh, booth. Man. So. <laughs> When you're, I mean, what is that like when they're just like, we need just all the fucking snakes in the world. We just keep making snakes. Yeah. How do you, how do you make a snake? Like you mm-hmm. didn't study snake production <laughs> in college, presumably. Like how, yeah. do you, how do you work on the problem like that? So um, a lot of it is uh, there are a bunch of old crusty, you know, people who have been doing effects for years and years and years. Um, and they know what they're doing. And the best you can do is really emulate them and ask stupid questions and hope they answer them. And so for me, a lot of it was I had a little bit of experience in mold making, casting, a little bit of experience in sculpting and painting. And, you know, you just pick it up as you go. People will give you, you know, if you're in a good shop, people will give you jobs that reach your level of incompetence. (laughs) And then if you keep managing to pull it through, people will give you more and more and you'll learn a bit more. One day before you know it, you're actually competent. <laughs> yeah. Just like snake, are you like Googling snake images for totally, like patterns yes. and just like, ah, that looks like a good one. Red yep. and, this one's red and green, I guess. Yeah. The How printer. many snakes did you make? Oh, me? Um, I, probably around 14, 15. Like, so I. That's I, not that I actually kind of thought it was going to be more. Like, how long did it take to make a snake? Well, it it really depended. So like some of the snakes had really complex internals. So there's this thing called seaming that you do mm-hmm. where you have a bunch of different silicone castings that are going around a robot. And what you need to do is get them all together in a convincing way so that when the robot moves, you don't see the seams anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that can take days where you actually will sculpt bits of the robot where like you have a transition and it's an ugly transition. So you cut that part away and you sculpt the difference between the two. If it was like a really high quality job, you'd do all that engineering to make sure the two halves go together perfectly, but that takes time. And if you're doing something that's not going to be direct on camera or something that's going to be in the background or it's a real quick shot or it's in motion, Mm -hmm. then you can cheat and do things like, you know, use silicone caulk to, you know, put the snake together. And so a lot of it was you'd, you'd bodge a little bit here and there and you'd work on a dozen different snakes all putting in an hour or two or putting in a day. And so the shop might be making a hundred snakes and you might've had your hand in 30 or 40 for a little bit of painting here and a little bit of seaming there. Mm -hmm. Did you, I mean, so it's unfortunate that none of your snakes actually ended up in the film, (laughs) but did you, uh, I don't know. Did that, did you see, when did you see the movie? What like, Oh man, I think in theaters were you like, well, I got to go see it. Yes. And then, 
I don't know, does your work behind... Were you, are you able to enjoy the movie? Did you see the script at all, or were they just like no. snakes? Just no. Snakes? Like, yeah. all you know is they need snakes. Yeah, so like... And that's Samuel L. Jackson, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, depending upon the scale of the production, um, the studio will take different amounts of effort to like come down and communicate what their vision is, and it depends on director to director. But what will also happen is that you get like a shot breakdown for some things, and for other things, if it's a low enough budget, they're just like, give me a, give me a something. I want a monster. I want a monster costume, and we'll just do what we can with it. Mm-hmm. And so for a thing, sort of a medium budget film like Snakes on a Plane, they didn't have a really detailed shot breakdown where it was like, we need to have this scene. If we don't have this scene, it doesn't you know, tie up the love interest with Sam Jackson just right, because we've got to frame it just right. They, they were just like, give us some snakes. We want some snakes that do this, some snakes that do that. We need a viper because its hood's going to go out. Mm-hmm. It was a very like Michael Bay kind of like, that's going to blow up and that's going to blow up and there needs to be a tanker truck here. It was very much that kind of like... No one was like, this snake represents anger. So <laughs> I see what you no, do here, but no. like it could be a little more scaly or they're just like, oh great, another snake, keep them coming. Yeah, no one was doing the art link letter here. And then are you like, oh, I guess I work in special effects now. I need to... Did you stay with that... Uh, was it the creature shop or yeah so what ended up happening was the job got suspended early and mm-hmm. so I was essentially out on my ear and I literally begged people at the studio to be like okay this, it's like my first month in Hollywood I've got to I've got to get another job and so uh, someone um, and I, I will remember this to the day I die uh, an effects artist now senior effects uh, technician at Mark Rappaport's creature effects uh, Todd Minobe said okay here's what I'm going to do I don't know you but I'm going to tell my friends over here at the Kyoto Brothers that I know you, that you're reliable and you're talented. And you show up on time and you do good work. And in exchange, you're going to do all of those things or I will fuck you. <laughs> uh-huh. Like you will die a horrible death for ruining my reputation. And so that's a great <laughs> setup. Like you got to do it. You yeah. Gotta, and then so what did you do with those guys? I worked on The Simpsons. Cool. Yeah. And this is the... A claymation Simpsons. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I worked on The Simpsons. How cool is that, right? Yeah. Um, and this is a claymation segment from a Treehouse of Horror, I want to say. Or is it not Treehouse of Horror? Um, if I remember it right, it was 14F04, The Girl Who Slept Too Little. Yeah, nerds will, if you say the wrong answer, nerds will find the right answer for you. Um, nerds don't care too much about any Simpsons past <laughs> season 10, I think. So. Oh, okay, okay. I'm safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Flew under the radar. But... That said, I have seen this segment, and it is really cool. Yeah. And it's like one of those ones where, and they've done a Lego episode recently, and uh-huh. um, there was that Homer Cubed episode back in the day. So like, I love when The Simpsons just like occasionally mixes it up a yeah. little. Was so this fun. was a seg- this is like a stop motion yep. claymation. Is it clay? Yeah. So it was claymation. It was actually a little bit of clay and a little bit of actual physical um, stop motion puppets. And so if I remember it right, they were all traditional maquettes. So uh, they had little joints inside of foam rubber. Um, and so the heads were hard and they had replaceable mouths. This is the Kyoto Brothers who also did the stop motion animation for Elf. Mm-hmm. You know, the... the They're like the opening, right? Yeah. And so they specialize in stop motion. They're one of the few studios that do it anymore outside of like Leica and a couple of other places. And so randomly this job came through the pipe and they, I was just working there. I was free labor essentially. And I had some, a little bit of experience prop making because I had done, you know, design school. We actually made props. Yeah. And so what was really fun from it was they, they had a lunchbox, a thing that saved an image from the camera and you could switch it back and forth, mm-hmm. looking at essentially what the camera is going to see with a reference image. And so I got to make this false perspective Simpson set where the way it's drawn isn't in true perspective. Nothing in nature that's a cube would look like it does like the the Simpsons end table with the lamp on it. Mm -hmm. But if you actually create a mashed 
table where it's not quite square and the lines don't line up, they can line up with the lines on the illustration. And that was a ton of fun where I created a bunch of props that were actually like partially flat or they were extra long. Oh, warped, so you were the, the screens were flashing back and forth. We were like sim, traditional 2D animated Simpsons. Yeah. So and the, trying to match those and sometimes matching them required doing some forced perspective stuff. Yeah. So Super it, cool. That's yeah, awesome. Because there's this thing called a reference plate, the what you're trying to aim for with creating the Simpsons couch gag, because it's now it's now like the constitution, it's it's in stone. Yeah. And so the couch gag has actually a particular setup that you're trying to hit and they, there's a specific line in there there's like title safe and action safe different levels um when the it, the screen gets chopped up in a bunch of different ways to go on domestic television versus widescreen versus mm-hmm. whatever there are so there's just like areas of the screen of the camera that you're capturing that you got to keep clear for the yes. tvma or the simpsons and tvma but like <laughs> or the closed captioning available or whatever you know yeah. all sorts of different in sd and in hd and all sorts of different stuff that yep. comes up yeah. So, was there anything? <laughs> I mean, The Simpsons, one institution, right? Like, is there anything? Uh, I don't know. Like, what was it like working on there? Was there anything Simpsonsy specific that happened on that job? Uh, actually, the the only like shenanigan that happened on it was originally Gumby was actually we had Gumby. It was, it was supposed to be a Gumby parody. Um, and that the where the clay came in is actually all the all the mushy transforms that the Simpsons did. So they bounced into screen then formed into the actual props or formed into the actual characters. Um, Gumby was green when we we painted him green and he was he was a green on camera. And then there was a back and forth fight with the studio and there I think Art Cloakey or whoever owns Gumby. Who does own Gumby? Like what all right anyway, yeah. <laughs> like I never quite understood when Gumby was made or where it came from, you know? Like yeah. I, I'm not sure if it's from the eighties or like the sixties. Seventies? I don't know. I don't know. know. Is it British? Like what's up with Gumby? It always uh, seemed a little off, right? It is. It's a little bit. It just seemed yeah. a little not, and not in the way it was claymation. Just seemed like a yeah. little different than just like tonally than other shows. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So they they actually had a problem with Gumby being green, and so we we in post made Gumby blue, and he was like Gumbo. Actually, I think that's the name of Gumby's dad. Gum Gumbo. I think there is a blue Gumby in, yeah. in the show somewhere. Yeah, so we actually changed his tint, so it's like, it's not Gumby, it's Mumby. Oh, I see, because the concern was, like, copyright? <laughs> yep. I see, I see. Is, is there a special effect uh, that you worked on in your time in, as a special effects person yeah. that you're the most proud of? I'm seriously proud of the uh, Predator tracking guns we made for AVP2. All right, so this is Alien vs. Predator 2. I gotta tell you, I have not seen Alien vs. Predator 2. <laughs> I don't even think I've seen Alien vs. Predator 1. That's okay. So I'm... But I know a thing or two about Predators, so, yeah. you know, I, I can fake it. What, what is what is this? So um, it was it was really exciting movie to work on because uh, Steve Wang was the lead sculptor for it, the, the sculptor for the original Predator, the character cool, designer yeah. for that you know, primary thing. Mm-hmm. And we were at ADI, a really like a great effect shop for doing big animatronics. Um, all of the big animatronics they've made for their various films, like Evolution, uh, Starship Troopers, uh, all the Aliens movies um, are along the walls. Cool. So it's a big warehouse, 50 foot ceilings. And so wherever there isn't loft space, they've hung all their props. And so it lines up with the major desks. And so I was under the brain bug from Starship Troopers desk. So it was like it's a like ten foot tall prop, and it's the it's yeah, real it's really size. Big. It's the one you know Neil Patrick Harris puts his exactly hand on it. I know exactly what it is. I know exactly what I can <laughs> picture it very clearly. Yeah. Um, 
sort of a little suggestive in the design, the, the brain bug. Yeah, the, you, some could argue that. Um, so, and then what is the? So this was the predator's shoulder-mounted yeah. gun. And what was what was like satisfying about that one? So there was a lot of there was a combination of sculpting and engineering going on there, where there was a lot of cool machining to get the angles right. So the the effect was. Uh, the predators are um, sort of coming in and trying to like fight the aliens old school style with uh, like scythes and glaives and stuff. And then one of them like turns around and it's like has the its business time stare and the guns shoot out from his back like cool. they lock and load. In predators place. have cool technology. Yeah. Like predator vision is like sort of iconic and like the three dot laser thing. Yep. So it's so cool to like think about like I don't know how the predator technology works yeah. that's, that's a cool imagining challenge. like creating new stuff by trying to delve deeper into that and like, yeah. how does that work maybe there's a gun that does this totally so do you have like are you like are you thinking what's gonna look cool are you thinking like all right i'm a predator <laughs> you know i've got a hunt prey for honor is it, like i would have a shoulder like are you thinking like functionally how the predator's gun would work or is it just like yeah. what's gonna look cool well if every employee in the studio did that it'd be a total mishmash and so what you have is you have a, a couple of people who are spending all of their time doing the conceptual design of that uh-huh, uh-huh. and some of them are deeply involved in the fabricating like steve wang was doing a lot of conceptual design and a lot of sculpting uh, dave Penicus, the the lead mechanical designer for that whole that whole uh movie um, was also heavily involved in figuring out like, okay, what's the shot that you, the director, want? Mm-hmm. Okay, here's how we we could break that down into a prop. Like we had a uh, waist up predator alien hybrid. It was a seven foot tall prop, but it was uh, it didn't have any legs. It was actually on a pneumatic sled, so that it could rise up and down as if it was running. And we could do all the animatronics for it, and we could use beefy animatronics so that it could move really fast. Because if you wanted to have a person do that, running's real hard, and so getting them moving fast from like a waist up shot is difficult or a punching I scene. I see. Yeah. But on the other side, you know, if you tried to get a really lightweight prop to do that. It might be difficult to give it sort of the oomph and the speed. Like, there are certain things where you try to use the camera's angle to hide your sins and hide the wires and where people are up inside of the prop. And so when we were doing the gun stuff, what was cool is figuring out the angles from which they could be totally flat and, like, shoot up Mm -hmm. real quick and really snap. And so figuring out where to put the servos and how to machine the metal and how that would flow in with the sculpture because it can't just look like a cool machined part. I mean, auto mechanics might like it, but this is about being in the fantasy and not having that fantasy broken. Right, right. And so that engineering was really fun to do. That's cool. And were you pleased with how the shot came out in the movie? Uh, I was pleased with that shot. I've got to say the way the movie was filmed all effects artists will tell you this. Um, the film was too dark and too blurry. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you want the the effects to be really clear because you spent so much time on right, them. Right, right, right. Yeah. When I worked on Team America, everybody was saying that. Oh my that. God, you worked on Team America? Yeah, yeah. I just watched that movie again. It was like a year ago <laughs> when like that whole interview thing kind of like, people were talking about it again because uh-huh. of the Kim Jong-il connection. Got it, yes. And I, of course, had seen it and loved it, but I just hadn't seen it in a long time. And I watched it again and it is so fucking funny. It's so funny. And also, it's a beautiful movie. It's gorgeous. It is, like, incredibly well shot and, yeah. like, really, like, nothing else. Like, what did you what did you do for this movie? Um, I cleaned puppets. Cool. Ma- the majority of my job was cleaning puppets. It was actually after the film wrapped. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there was a lot of this. So there's a lot of archiving and stuff that happens in films where you'll go in with the, the studio that made the, the film and see what you can salvage, see what might need to do promo stuff, like might need to be saved for commercials. And after a, a film is done filming, everything is beat to hell. So like all the props are torn up and they're dirty and they've been like rubbed on the floor right. and put into bins and they're all mushed. And so restoring that um, like takes a lot of time and effort. And that was also at the Kyoto Brothers. And so, like, what would happen is we had a bunch of people from the crew rotating in to, like, primp up their set or to, like, restitch something on their puppet and sort of doing a victory lap. And a lot of them were talking about seeing shots from the film, like seeing dailies and stuff where they were like, the camera is using this, like it, it's got a tilt shift on it and you can't see the prop I made because it's blurry because they had spent all this time like in Oman or, or they have a scene where you have a bunch of palm trees and they were made of dollar bills and they were really proud because they were like, oh, it's a joke. Mm-hmm. And like it, the Kim Jong-il's like um, the North Korean city that, that like, comes up to Kim Jong-il's Palace of Doom is all made of Chinese takeout containers. Oh, cool. And they were so proud of the details. It was, I think one reason I appreciated watching it again was because I was watching in HD, which I don't know that I did uh, like the first time I saw it on like VHS so many years. I'm sure I didn't so many years ago, you know? Um, so you could really appreciate, if you're not the dollar, um, the dollar palm trees and the Chinese food takeout containers, like just the craftsmanship in like oh, yeah. every corner of that movie. Yeah. They, they got really creative. All the heads were actually identical, and they got different faces. Oh. So it, it's to make sure that they could get, because you end up making a, for a prop that's like front and center all the time in a movie that's all props, you have to make a ton of them. Mm-hmm. And they were really minimized. There were 14 servos inside of that little apple-sized head for each of the characters. Oh, really? They're not? I just assumed... I don't know what I assumed. There's com- there's computers inside the head yeah. of the team. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Matt, Matt Stone and Trey Parker were actually physically on set, like, working the mouth of the puppet and doing voices at the same time. Oh, wow. So, it, why do they put them away? Like, is there a thought, like, sequel? I guess, like, sequel, you don't want to have to rebuild your Alec Baldwin puppet? It, it will depend. What, what I was doing was uh, archiving them. So, some of them were going into a museum. Um, so, there was a museum display that they wanted to uh, prepare for a, like... Uh, a costume exhibit and they mm. wanted to show off those costumes um, for another one studios uh, tried to archive and show off their best work and they were really proud of Kim Jong-il and a bunch of like the like Kim Jong-il was a, a special puppet for them oh you know it's funny I remember I was at Universal Studios I've probably talked about that stupid trip to Universal Studios so much on this podcast <laughs> and uh but, you know, they have, like, a pavilion there of just, like, crap from, like, old Universal Studios and also, like, upcoming movies you haven't heard of yet. Yeah. And I went, and when I was there, they had the then-unreleased uh, Box Trolls movie, which was ah. made by Leica. Yeah. Uh, and they had uh, some of the Box Trolls, like, figure, you know, puppets. Um, yeah. I don't, what do you call them? They're stop-motion um, so the, beings? You would call them stop-motion maquettes or stop-motion characters? So they had those, the maquettes, yeah. and it was cool. Like, And they had, you could see, like, the personality, even, like, when they're not animated and, like, the, the craftsmanship of it. So, yeah. special effects... And this is all in L.A., I take it, right? All in L.A. Hollywood. Yeah. California. Burbank, Simi Valley. And But now you're in New York. We I'm are currently yeah. in New York. Uh, what happened? How did you go from uh, special effects to robots? And now is probably a good time to mention, actually, uh, that not only is this an audio recording podcast, <laughs> but I am uh, recording this with a camera mm. and shooting a video of this conversation, which I will post to the YouTube channel. Those who are already watching on the YouTube channel have probably noticed uh, that the entire <laughs> video, we've had a table full of robots. May have got an inkling. Uh, 
weird kind of sex toy looking robots oh, is man. that fair to say is that okay Fine. all right the internet's already said it i know i know i'm sorry it's it, <laughs> I, just, let me just get that out of the way i'm just trying to paint a picture for those uh, who aren't watching the yeah, youtube video mental picture um but i think we might get a chance to play with these robots yeah, yeah. today we're gonna talk but first what the hell are these things and how did you come to go from that to this so yeah so what I, happened? I had I had a ton of fun in the effects industry. It was great, like scaring Japanese investors with the face huggers that we were making, shooting Q-tips out of uh, air guns into the monster from gra- the Graboid from Tremors. Like good cool. times. Oh my god, Graboids! This is great. <laughs> but um, one of the difficulties about being in the effects world is if you want to design the props, the industry is getting smaller, and you're competing against the best people in the industry. Because as it gets smaller, it keeps the best. Yeah. And is it getting smaller because of CG? In in lots of ways because of CG. Um, also, studios, you know, the business model changes over time and studios are, are driven by trying to get quick turnarounds off of relatively high budget films that are guaranteed to make a success, like sequels. You know, there's no chance there's not going to be as many Aven- Avengers movies as humanly possible mm-hmm. because it's a good investment. Yeah. And what it's created is a system for atomizing the effects. So studios will film in a bunch of different places to try and get different advantages, different spots. You know, Peter Jackson fabricated an entire universe of special effects with Weta in um, New Zealand to make the Hobbit films and the Lord of the Rings films. Um, What ended up sort of happening over time is that the the filming and the effects spread out where you'd have some studios in Vancouver, some studios here and there, and it was harder to have like a big shop that was doing big work 24-7 keep a crew of 50 people on. And as it sort of shrank, studios had to tighten their belts and figure out to maybe do more commercials, maybe do smaller work. And it became le- less an option to like make your entire career going up through a huge 60-70 person effect studio that was doing a big movie every month. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of looked at it, I really wanted to design, I really wanted to build robots, I wanted to build, you know, my own stuff and, and, you know, make my own mistakes. And the advice of having, you know, old crusty engineers is great, but they're also, they're, they're also the kind of people who would be like, nah, you just shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but I want to, I, I want to screw up. Well, why don't we try? And uh, like for using computer controlled machines or 3d printing, which are now, you know, part of effects. And so I, um, I I took a job in San Francisco at a place called Squid Labs, which is a um, sort of a science R&D kind of lab with a bunch of little companies. Um, it spun out Instructables and Makani Power, a company that just got by Google. And, you know, I started playing more in the engineering space. I took my ability to build working stuff and working robots and getting jobs further and further into like engineering, fabricating stuff that had to like hit particular strength requirements or had to hit particular motion requirements more and more the traditional engineering route that I I didn't picture I'd be going. Mm -hmm. And over time, I, I got this, this repertoire of skills where I was like, you know what? There's this interesting new field of robotics. There's some interesting experiments and papers I've seen for soft robots, things that emulate life that work in many ways like biological mechanisms do. I bet I could take my experience with silicones and casting and mold making and making lifelike stuff and apply it to these robotics with my background in the industrial design. How do you fabricate something that you can have like two of? And I used the term in the beginning. It was a term I honestly was not super familiar with as of a few weeks ago. Soft robots. What's a soft robot? 
So as as a new field, it's it's hard to talk about without contrasting it with traditional robots. So with a traditional robot, it's made of sort of hard linkages. And if you want it to adapt to the world, you might give it sensors and some intelligence, like have a system that's like every time you, the sensor presses, it stops the robot from moving forward. And so you might have a lot of sensors and a lot of knowledge about where the arm is going to be able to pick up an orange without crushing it. Mm-hmm. And that term is um, called compliance. So in the robotics world, that you can think of that as compliance. There's another way to do that, and that's using things that have embodied compliance. They're made of soft stuff. And so like a car tire is a compliant mechanism. It just grips the road kind of no matter what the car is doing, spreads out, spreads that force. You can sort of combine the two. You can have behavior compliance and embodied compliance if you engineer the soft stuff. So if you think about it like cloth has a bunch of interesting properties for turning into a mechanism where you can actually like inflate a cloth like those sail type parachutes or kite sails or the sail of a ship, it gets stiff as the air passes through it because it's really strong in tension. Mm-hmm. And so what you can do is you can use that property to say, put a inflating you know bladder inside of a pocket of cloth, inflate it, and suddenly you can change how stiff a bar is to turn it into an actuator. But an actuator is something that can do some turning movement just off a, of a soft thing, you know, that spreads the load for putting, say, on a human body for making a piece of medical equipment that helps someone with cerebral palsy move their arm out. So, yeah, I guess that's the next question is what yeah. are, like, the practical applications of soft robots? I guess interacting with humans without tearing them limb from limb. Exactly. Step one. Yeah. Someone was recently killed servicing a robotic arm in a factory. I think it was in Switzerland. Oh, wow. So that's not even, like, a medical. That's, like, a car. Let's, I don't know. I'm They're, imagining it's a car assembling yeah, robot. Yeah, pretty much. And... So you're saying like all robots could like not even ones that are designed to touch humans, mm-hmm. but like all robots could be safer if we were, you know, if they were a little, yeah. little, little more huggable. Well, that's the theory behind there's a robot called Baxter, which is uh, a assembly line robot, but all of its mechanisms are actually designed to be it's very lightweight and it's designed to move at a you know, reasonable speed without being able to like knock somebody over. So all the mechanisms ha- have clutches on them, almost like the clutch on a car, where if it hits something, it will actually remember where its position is and stop. Right. I think we got a very popular soft robot in pop culture yes. over the past year, Baymax from yeah. um, Big Hero Fear, 6. Yeah. Right? That's that's a soft robot? It's a soft robot. Because he was inflatable. Totally. And he was a medical robot yes. by design, so he could, you know... Uh, is that is there anything about his design that is uh, realistic or practical in the world of soft robots? Is that yes. like based? So what, what about Baymax is based in reality? I, it's based off of the work of Christopher Atkinson. Oh at my CMU. god, it's like a specific. Uh, yes. So so tell me about the work of Christopher Atkinson. So a lot of his focus is this this robots interfacing well with people. Avenue, um, you know, full disclosure, I actually, I speak with Chris every once in a while. We have like a what's new in soft robotics chat every mm-hmm. once and again. Um, but his work is a lot of how, how do you get organically good interfaces with people? Because currently what we do is we have a robot that's like really strong. And to make sure it doesn't crush and kill people, we pad it with foam and we try to limit exactly how much strength it actually uses. Mm-hmm. And that's not that's not a great yeah, relationship. Yeah, you describe it, it sounds very inefficient. <laughs> what you want is something that like rises to the level of people, where by design from the from the ground up, from the motors and everything that you use to get force where you need it to go, it's made to bend and adapt to the environment. Mm-hmm. And 
Baymax, at the end of that movie, I swear the rest of the interview won't be about Baymax, but at the end of that movie, he puts on armor. He becomes like a hard robot again. Yeah. Spoil- minor spoiler alert for Big Hero 6 here, though. I'm pretty sure that's on the poster. I'm sure it's like the action figures or whatever. Yeah. But he becomes like, I don't know, he, they have to fight something or someone. Yeah. I forget exactly. But he kind of becomes a hard robot at the end. Yeah, I was always I was always a little miffed at that. Like, as a person who works in soft robots, I always thought they, they should have used, like, he's a pneumatic robot. I always thought that his, like, hardness should be actually, like, you know, he has a very rip-resistant material or, you know, he has a stretch-limited material where he can inflate a little bit more and it stiffens his skin or mm-hmm. something like that rather than having armor on. But yeah, I that's guess just it's like me. a superhero thing. I don't yeah, know. totally. Yeah, we can we can talk to Christopher about that. <laughs> uh, is there what is like so? How far are we in soft robotics? What is the current leading soft robot? Well, um, or you know, yeah, a few of them. It's a it's a new enough field that there are. How new is it? Uh, about thirty years old. So That's new. Uh, for an academic pursuit, yeah. I see. So um, what often happens is you'll have some experiments, and a, a lot of it it's really empowered by 3D printing and oh. some new design of uh, elastomers, so silicones, rubbers. Um, when I was in the effects industry, we were actually sort of getting that revolution because a lot of rubbers, especially ones to cold cast, where you don't have to heat them up to a vulcanizing temperature, you don't have to like put them through factory industrial processes, um, a lot of rubbers um, of the of yesteryear were terrible, where they'd like leach out oil and stuff, where they'd off gas, where they'd stick to each other unless you used really industrial releases. And so, as the chemistry's gotten better, it's scaled. Where like you first start with some academic experiments in where the chemistry should go, and then some people take it take it up. It has some pokes into industry, and you know, like ten years later, it's a mass manufactured product you can actually afford. And so oftentimes the fundamental research is interestingly far, but it hasn't touched the real world yet, where academia might have been playing with a bunch of interesting ideas and developing things, but there has to be this, you know, um, this game of footsie with the market to see who's going to actually buy it if someone produces it at scale. Mm Mm-hmm. And so with soft robotics, it's been like that, where a bunch of new technologies have enabled it. People have put some pokes out, and in the last about five years, um, four or five uh, soft robotics companies have hit the market. Um, uh, Empire Robotics, Soft Robotics Incorporated, um, Europe just uh, used a uh, new technology initiative to create an organization called RoboSoft, which is all about trying to like get soft robotics out into the market. Cool. Uh, I'm into that. What is... Uh, your is there a particular problem that you are trying to solve with Insoft Robotics? Yeah. What is that? So from my design for manufacturing background, I want to make the, the process of designing and building a soft robot relatively straightforward, where f- right now everything is roll your own, where everything is a complete unique prototype. And in my mind, the best research and the best applications actually come from an environment it's easy to work in. It's easy to experiment and play with. And so I want to both build awesome robots, but also not waste my time on one-offs that don't build on each other. And so I've been trying to find systems for designing and building durable soft robots where it's easy to change a little thing. This, this idea called iterative prototyping where you build and you change and you, and you tweak like a scientific experiment where you actually look at the relative differences between a bunch of things where you keep everything constant, but the kind of silicone you use or the wall thickness. 
And you have the ability to actually like see where you're making progress because you're not wasting all of your time, like manually stitching things together where, you know, one little mistake could mean the whole project. Is that why uh, I noticed on your website, you talk a lot about open source. Yes. Are the things you design open source? Yes. The majority of everything that I've done, unless it's client work where they're specifically, you know, I'm contracted to their secrets are their secrets. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything that I do is open. Can you explain what that means for those that don't know? Yeah. So, um, a lot of my a lot of my work is is supported. No worries. Is uh, supported by people who are like playing around with it and hacking every day. Um, It varies. You know, it would be nice if I could just have have a problem and turn people loose on it and then have them come back with wonderful solutions. It's much more organic and internet-y than that. And mm-hmm. so sometimes I'll release a thing like Han Solo in Carbonite as a 3D printable object and people will spend infinity hours figuring out how to make that better. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm here being like, hey, can anybody help me with these valves? And they're like, Psh. Right. So where do you release it on? Like, what is the, what is this platform we're talking yeah. about? Who are these people when you're like, can someone help me make these valves better? Who, who are you asking that to? Yeah, so it's it's almost entirely through Thingiverse, which is uh, owned by MakerBot, which there's a, there's a minor controversy about because, you know, big companies and MakerBot recently closed, or a couple of years ago, closed the source on the MakerBot. So its interaction with the open source community is a little bit fraught. But... I've been a member of it for years and years and years, and it's sort of the evil of of most convenience. And so I uh, I build designs, and then most of the things I do are laser cut or three D printed. Yeah, actually, on the table you can see a bunch of three D printed doodads here. Which ones are three D printed? So the um, the new gripper that I just made. So this is a new gripper. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hold it up for the camera here and try to try to describe this to the audience. So this is sort of looks like. It's a little pod. It's like a bird foot. Yeah. So there's a, a little pod with, I guess, five, three, four, five sizes. And then there's three soft, kind of fun to squeeze little tentacles emerging from it. <laughs> yeah. And a little base underneath it. Video watchers, how'd I do describing that? <laughs> like, um, comment, subscribe. So, yeah. So this is, um, and I, I actually had, I've been staring at this thing since you sat down and <laughs> I had no idea what it is. This is a gripper? Yeah. So I guess it grabs? Yeah. What does uh, it grab? Can. And can we see it in action? Sure, yeah. So um, I'm going to also you do some <laughs> supplemental camera recording. Excellent. Just to be clear, I'm hosting the podcast, recording the audio, recording on that camera, mm. and now I am using a handheld camera just because I'm so excited to see this robot, this gripper in action. This is Coverage. something you designed. Something I designed. So it actually, it only came out today. Mm-hmm. So I only completed uh, all of the fiddling to get it to work today. So we're the, you will be the first human being aside from me to see it work. Wow. And when you say it came out, what does that mean? So um, I've been building, I've been designing the various bits of it uh, for a while. And it's a lot of experimenting to try and figure out, like, you'll take individual aspects of the problem. Like, uh, how do you, how do you make these guys consistently? Mm-hmm. And, uh, this is actually, uh, I'll probably start talking about the book that these I'm guys writing. being the tentacles, just like, how do you yeah. make the tentacles all identical across? Yes. Theoretically get... when we scale this thing up and how do you make them quickly? It kind of like the sarlacc kind of like coming yes. out, coming out or like a sandworm of some kind anyway, totally. kind of emerging from beneath the sand. It, it's really, you, it takes me a force of will to get away from creatures. Uh-huh, yeah. Cause like I, I want to make things organic and creaturey. And it's difficult for me to like pull in the reins and be like, okay, all right. But if I do that, everybody on the internet's going to be like, ah. But can't, you can probably, <laughs> you know, uh, be inspired by 
biology and mother nature and even like sci-fi design and like you know what's in star trek and star wars and all that stuff right so what is this thing you're currently this you're screwing the pod it's been hooked up to a hose that hose hooked up to another mysterious black box that black box has a canister on it i'm assuming it's some sort of air pressure thing what is what is this black box hold on i'll point the mic oh no worries so uh, the black box, another thing that just got built today, um, is the air brain. So uh, inside, there's a little. You've microphone. had a very busy day. I, this is <laughs> super busy. This is this is a Monday. I'm very impressed. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so one of the one of the things that I end up doing is giving demos and showing this off. And I thought it'd be nice to have a uh, little remote control. Um, system where I could take it on the road and have air supplied by a CO2 cartridge, same kind of use in an emergency bike tire reinflator, uh-huh. uh, a battery and a little microprocessor in here to run some valves so that I can individually address the valves and get the uh-huh. robot to do its thing. Let's see. Yeah. Oh my God. So the, the tentacles are now gripping, which yeah. is making them larger. Or the <laughs> tentacles are inflating, which is yeah. making them larger, which is making them all kind of grab towards the center. Yeah. So and this, what is this thing you're grabbing? Is that just any any old thing? Yeah. The the idea is to grab any old thing. This design probably needs a little bit of love and, and work. Gotcha. But... Now this is something oh, no. I think we can agree <laughs> not that practical on its own. Oh because no. you're holding it with your hand, which is also a perfectly fine gripper. Like if it's... you can hold this if you can hold the device, you've already got a gripper. <sighs> but okay. that said, it's not hard to imagine like other uses for this thing. Uh, or, you know, put, making it a part of something else, like uh-huh. anything that would need to grab something. Uh-huh. Cool. All right. Picked up. <laughs> We've picked it up. You know what they, they kind of look like inflated? They're blue, and it kind of looks like the... This is... I can't believe mm-hmm. I'm going to say this, but I'm already talking, so I'm just going to keep rolling here. <laughs> uh, it looks like three noses of Watto, the junk dealer from episode <laughs> hey! one of uh, Phantom Menace. Yeah. The sort of offensive Jewish stereotype from uh, the rainbow stereotypes that. in The Phantom Menace. <laughs> yeah. And equally offensive to all races. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I'm just trying to paint a picture yeah. because I know that you know this is a podcast primarily, and that you know us as opposed to a pod race, and we're not. Oh, <laughs> and it's just like people can't see what we're doing. But when <laughs> just so you understand, listeners, when someone's like, "I could bring over robots," I'm gonna do that regardless <laughs> of whether it works for you or not. Like I'm gonna say yes to that. Yeah. So that's the grabber. What could we? What What is a practical use for the grabber? Where, where do you see this thing going? So that's actually part of um, a set of tutorials I've been making. I'm writing a book on soft robots because I want to teach people how to make them. And so I've been trying to make very, very simple ones, ones that are easy for people to play around with. So the idea for this one is to make a really cheap to produce robot gripper. Um, It still needs some love and attention. You're saying I could make that thing? Well, it's actually just made of four... 3D printed bits. So what about the um, the tentacles, like the the yeah the soft the soft part. So the soft parts are actually pulled from a 3D printed mold. Oh. So what I do is I, I print you know same material as the body of this thing is made of. I print a mold that has a cavity in it that's the shape of the tentacle, and the way I design the mold is that it pops apart so that when you you put a screwdriver in you open up the mold all the bits fall apart and you're left with just the tentacle there and you can put the mold back together like Legos and use it again. Cool. And so you just buy silicone on Amazon. Uh, one thing I want to understand a little better before we see robot number two in action, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a little confused actually, like who do you work for? Like <laughs> yourself? Like when, yeah. you're, when you're building these things, like 
is this a shop that you like? Yeah. What is? How do you make money doing this? Not that that <laughs> makes it good or important, but just so totally. I understand, like what yeah. what is the what is the business here? So I own a robotics laboratory called Super Releaser. That's a great sentence. I own a robotics laboratory called Super Releaser. Thank you. And the laboratory is mostly funded by NASA. So there's a long-term NASA project as cool. part of their mission to Mars. Government funding. Yes. Um, it's a specific con- So I'm a subcontractor on a specific contract. And that is to figure out how to have spacesuits that don't have any air in them. Oh, is this how you know uh, our mutual friend who suggested you exactly, uh, as yes. a guest for the show, which I thought was a great suggestion, Carrie Love, who was on... I want to say episode, I don't know. I can't, I, I don't know the episode number. It's about a year or two ago. I'm usually pretty good at episode numbers. But Carrie was, uh, has this pretty similar story to you, actually. In yeah. That she did Broadway costumes and costumes, and now she works on spacesuits. It's so sort of a similar, like, uh, engineering and art, mm-hmm. uh, like, transition a little bit into art and engineering, which yeah. is a, a really interesting thing to me. So that, and so you are working on this spacesuit project yeah. with her and with that company. Yes. Cool. So I'm working with Final Frontier Design, and the idea is, uh, to put a glove that has no air in it on the existing uh, ISS suit. So there's a concept called mechanical counterpressure. That usually how you keep your guts from going out into space in a spacesuit is you got a jacket of air all around you. But the disadvantage is it's pressurized mm-hmm. air. If you've ever had like a tire or anything that's inflated at like 15 pounds, you'll know that it wants to sort of retain a certain shape. Okay. And to move against it, it's a spring. And so the entire spacesuit becomes a spring where there's this position in which it's stitched, almost like a teddy bear. And if you try to do anything... It, it springs back. It springs back. Uh-huh. And it's, you got a lot of fatigue on the fingers, and there are all sorts of gruesome footage of like people like pulling a bloody hand out of the spacesuit because they were like using it all day, and it chafed so bad, their fingernails, all, all sorts of stuff. You know, they're, Astronauts are sort of like pilots, where oftentimes you just got to get the job done, no matter how uncomfortable the seat is. So... How do you, uh, as a relative newcomer to the soft robotics field, how do you score a NASA contract? Like, what does that even, how does that process, how do you know that they're looking for someone, much less convince them that you are the person? Yeah. Well, um, a lot of it was um, Final Frontier to Design, the the people who are the overseers of the contract. I'm a subcontractor on that. Mm -hmm. And they have been working with NASA for a long time. They also do work with other uh, space flight organizations so um sort of the the spacex um kind of genre of people trying to get into space other ways and they build a lot of uh engineered suits whether it's a flight suit or you know you know a helmet for communications on, on like a high altitude plane or something like that they have been working with nasa long enough that nasa thinks of them when they have new projects in mind and so they were essentially asked to put together a proposal. They responded to a request for a proposal um, and put together a proposal. And and one of the advantages that I sort of bring to the party is I built a lot of rapid-fire prototypes inside of the window for the proposal. There's this idea that to get the glove to fit with the pressurized suit, you have to do a nice, smooth pressure transition because the glove isn't going to have any air in it. It's actually going to be open to vacuum, but the mesh weave of the glove is so fine, your skin won't notice. Cool. The idea is an elastic and air pockets inflate and restrict your hands, so it's exactly like being you know, pushed on by you know, an air column I thought you were going to be like, it's exactly like the snake that bit that guy's <laughs> it's snake. It's exactly snake like that. Snakes on a yeah, plane. Yeah, his face swelled up, and he's exactly <laughs> like snakes on a plane. All comes back. It's all related. So um, it's actually that uh, 
they had this uh, this proposal to put in, and I can make prototypes relatively quickly, and they they usually work, um, not all the time, but they usually work. And so I uh, put together a prototype of this wrist dam, this thing to block pressure um, from the suit into the glove without uh, having any folds or anything. One of the difficulties of working in pressure systems is that uh, relatively small differences in pressure on the skin, you take it for granted that the pressure is even around you because you, you don't tend to be at varied pressures in your whole life unless you're like your ears pop on a plane. Then you can know how painful small differences in pressure, that's only a couple of PSI in your ears versus the rest of the plane. It's a small difference and it hurts a bunch. Big differences in pressure on your skin can actually develop these things called edemas. You can get water pooling under the skin. It's it's pretty gruesome. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the bends is a is a pressure differential mm-hmm, problem mm-hmm. where you essentially you foam like a soda with the cap pulled off. Bends is bad. That I know. That <laughs> yes. much I know. Nitrogen bubbles in the brain. You can actually get it going up as well as going down. Th- okay. So you, Terrible. It's Good actually just if you let the pressure off, if you're at super deep pressure and you let the pressure off you get the bends if you're regular pressure and you let the pressure off you get the bends so if you go from here to space in one go and you don't get have a pressure garment you get the bends so this is so that's like the primary project of the robot lab and then additionally it sounds like you have some various private work for companies that pops up and then additionally it sounds like you're just hacking and making fun stuff and building open source stuff and just being an active participant in this community. Yeah, the the things that I'm I'm sort of showing here today are more of like my long-term arc of work where I want to figure out how to like nail all the concepts down in here uh in in a self-contained enough way that it's very easy to um to just sort of plug and play. You want a mechanism that solves this problem. Say like your robot, you know, it has to look at its feet. Think of Osimo, has to look at its feet everywhere that it goes because its feet are very hard. You know, they're on a servo and it has to have them positioned just right to land and not topple over. And so if you have like shifting rocks or sand or something, what works much better is things that have uh, what's called underactuation in robotics, where you're actually like giving it little bits of force, but the system actually has is sort of sprung in such a way that it wants to be stable, that it, instead of being like a metal plate, where if it's not just right, everything's wrong, it actually has some give and some floppiness and some stability. You know, like bird feet automatically grip branches because there's a tendon in there oh, okay. that... Just at, when the bird's weight is on it, they're gripping the branch. That's why uh, dead birds can actually sit on a branch. Good to know. Good, good to know. Mm-hmm. Now, as you pass birds along a along a wire, you'll just think I'll, that I can to always yourself. wonder who's dead. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> let's see this other guy in action. Yeah, sure. So this one uh, is called the Glaucus. Glaucus. So the Glaucus is a quadruped. And so this thing, let's describe <laughs> for the folks at home. It's like there's a little pink kind of submarine shape, you know, just like a pink uh, oval, a pink pill, let's say, a large one, Mm -hmm. and it's got four stubby legs coming out of it, two hoses in the back. The two hoses are being hooked up to two pumps. pumps. It almost looks like uh, the thing the doctor squeezes when he's taking your blood pressure. They're exactly that. They are exactly that. Yeah. And now it seems that we are squeezing. Hold on. This is a great opportunity to use my handheld camera, a.k.a. my phone. So the... um, the legs are being squeezed kind of in... So what, you explain what's going on here. One pump does one side, and the other pump does yeah. the other side. And so then by the, squeezing, by alternating which one you're doing, you're actually getting this thing to walk. Yeah. So This the, is pretty crazy. Thank you. So it's 10 actuators inside of here. 
um, that are all controlled by these two airlines. And the actuator is actually, I, it's, it's fun to do this. Everybody expects there's something inside of here. Yeah. But there's nothing inside of here. It's just silicone. So where are the air. actuators? What, what is an actuator? You just told yeah. me there's 10 actuators in there. <laughs> what do you mean there's nothing in there? So what's actually inside of here are specifically shaped air bladders inside of the silicone. So it's just silicone cool. and air. Yeah, yeah. What happens is I make a oh, mold. It's a thicker. I'm squeezing. It's a little thicker than I anticipated. It kind of looks like a balloon, but it's, got, it's heavy <laughs> like a... Uh, phrasing i don't know like what <laughs> i'm not sure what um I'll, I'll work on it sorry what were you saying oh yeah so um the the way that it's made is um part of this iterative prototyping thing i'm talking about this stuff is hard to simulate but it's relatively easy to have a 3d printer print a mold and so what i do is i make the cad thinking about how i want this guy to move and then make a bunch of molds where I change the angles of this or the wall thickness in here. So you're changing the angles of the legs mm-hmm. or just like the thickness of the bladders inside yeah. of it. These are like, it looks like the simplest thing in the world, mm-hmm. but I guess there's a lot going on in there. Yeah. And then the other thing I should say, again, I'm trying to help people who can't, who aren't in this room right now, um, see, just visualize this. Is that uh, it's not going very fast. No. Like, you're not going to win a race with this thing. <laughs> no. But it's moving forward. Yeah. It looks like it would move forward over basically anything, you know? Yeah. Um, it's like not a balloon. You could put it over mm-hmm. sharp in the desert. It's going to, like, you know, move and not pop. And the other thing is, it looks like I could hit it with a hammer and it's not yes. going to break. Like, that's, it looks durable. That's one of the fun things about this is it, it stands up to impact. There's a great video. I have a great video of sort of the star prototype um, that I, I is, at a, uh, is at another lab right now. Um, conveniently, conveniently, the most attractive <laughs> one is at a different lab, not here right now. So this, like, it, it's not much on, wait, sorry, what does that video do? What does he do in the video? So it's actually, I've, I've gotten one to walk really fast. Um, one of the difficulties is actually, uh, the level of precision necessary to get really good performance out of these things, um, is a lot of, a lot of fiddling and a lot of tweaking. And eventually after I made a bunch of glaucuses, it was like, okay, <laughs> That prototype is done. It did the thing. I'm not here to make the world record fastest robot. I'm here to prove that I can make a thing using this method. I've got to move on with my life. Do you have any ideas for what a practical uh, application for such a device might be? Like, what can we put this on the bottom of to help help make everyone's life better? So I I don't think a Glaucus by itself is like a super useful tool. What I do think is like, it would be totally feasible to have a robot, like a traditional, like a walking Osimo kind of robot with feet mechanisms that are more like a mountain goat, where you have complicated mechanisms inside of the feet to like adjust where they go. Why not like a Rosie the Robot type situation? Just put it on wheels. Wheels work in a lot of scenarios. Mm-hmm. Wheels aren't that great in, in when the you're- dome cities in the sky that we'll yes. all be living in, for instance. You suffer from the Dalek problem where like stairs become your mortal mm-hmm. enemy. Like Daleks became like R2-D2 where they have rockets that come out as per convenient. Yeah. And it's because the it stairs and all sorts of other things don't like wheels. It's why there are so many challenges. You know, there's a, a cash money challenge to redesign wheelchairs right now that can go upstairs. I've seen that done and it's cool. And it's like, I mean, what a great- thing for to design for people Mm -hmm. but it looks like so cut like i don't know if i i don't know if i'd get in a chair and go up the stairs (laughs) in one of those like it looks like it's a lot of moving parts and just like it looks like a very cumbersome solution that we currently have yeah so one of my one of my goals is to figure out ways of doing um sort of organic movement things that are appropriate for under actuation in ways that aren't super super complicated to manufacture because you if you think you tried to make this using springs and little bits of metal. 
you could get the same motion yeah. pretty much. It's kind of like a waddle. Like this yes. thing's just like kind of waddling. Uh, yes. But if you tried to get exactly that motion, you'd actually be looking at lots of moving parts. Yeah. So I'm not here trying to make like a world record fastest walker. I'm trying to figure out how to put a lot of moving parts in something that's simple to make. Because the process for me, once all the molds are made on the printer, all that I have to do is I cast a couple of waxes. That's how the air bladders get in there. I melt the wax out after the silicone is cured. You know, and I put the mold together, put the waxes in there, pour it, and melt the wax out, and I've got a complete glaucus. It's the better part of a day's work to make one of these. What's a glaucus? What, this name? guy. I know, I know, no. What's the name? <laughs> yeah, Where's the yeah. name come from? It comes from Glaucus Atlanticus, the beautiful swimmer, the blue sea slug. Yeah, cool. Uh, what, is with, what is it with you scientists and naming things after animals? <laughs> Sorry. I, um, so and then I guess, like, the thing, I feel like this was all set up, really, for th- this question, which is like, how did uh, how did special effects prepare you for yeah. this career in soft robotics? Yeah, so or did it prepare you? It it prepared me pretty well. So, in my mind, um, there's a there's an opportunity inside of the field of robotics to apply design thinking. So, like what I learned in school, I, I've ragged on school <laughs> quite a bit in this in this podcast. But I don't I, think you did. <laughs> I said I didn't study anything in communications. I think I'm the one that was ragging on school. All right, all right, um, but. What I, what I learned was a lot of design thinking, how to address a problem from a high level and figure out where needs engineering, where needs dead reckoning, and where you just like go in and get your hands dirty and hack. And in the effects world, I learned more and more of that. It was super useful for solving problems of like, uh, you know, we want this end product, but we're going to have to go through a lot of physical processes to make it. Do we make molds? Do we sculpt them as one-offs? What's going to be a better use of our time? What's a good material for that? And having a background in hacking and experimenting and playing with all of this stuff actually makes you suitable for these genres of problem solving that use similar materials mm-hmm. and similar bits of engineering. I found when I started looking at soft robots, I was like, I could make that. That's a lot like making these kinds of molds. That's a lot like doing this kind of casting. Oh, I could make this with a matrix mold or whatever. Because I had played with effects props and I was like, oh, if I found a you know, a thicker durometer, a heavier durometer of silicone. That just means less squishy. I could do this thing. Well, there was a trick that we used to do in the effects world where we'd mix this silicone and this silicone to get a heavier durometer. And I could bring that that kind of stuff to bear to make some new robots. And I didn't have to get like an engineering degree to do something meaningful in robotics, a field that I really like. What is different about working in uh, <laughs> robotics? Like, is there something... What's what's different between working for snakes on a plane and working for NASA? Um, uh, working for NASA is a lot easier. Is that true? <laughs> well, um, the level of scrutiny is different. So, like in in Snakes on a Plane, uh, like many of the, sh- the shows that I did, someone would come in and be like, "I don't like that prop. It's gone." Yeah, because it's art. Yeah. And so you'd have a director come by, and this happened for Steve Wang. It was heartbreaking to see, like, he had to re-sculpt the Predator-Alien hybrid a bunch of times because people would come in and be like, eh, it's not scary enough. Totally. It's such a Hollywood thing, too. It's just, like, people having, you know, everyone has to have an opinion to sort of justify their existence. Totally. So, whereas NASA, I imagine, less opinion-based. Well, in many ways, NASA really wants you to succeed. And so they don't have infinite time. They can't do much hand-holding, but... 
they'll give you all the information that they can get to you if you can like say it in legalese, if you can say it in the particular language that they use to process mm-hmm. forms and sheets and stuff, or if you can get some time with the right people. They, they want this to work because eventually a lot of the DARPA fast track and, you know, um, there's this thing called a SIBR, SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research Grant. Um, the government gives money to places that are doing interesting work because they eventually want a contract from those people. They want you to succeed mm-hmm. so they can have you in their Rolodex of people to solve problems because as it so happens, the government has a lot of problems to deal with and NASA wants to get people into space. Yeah. And so they want they uh, are willing to be like, okay, this is a new technology. We want you to do this. Is this reasonable? I mean, so how long did you work in special effects for? Uh... About four years. And how long have you been doing this for? Um, about the same. I did my first robotics prototype, soft robot prototypes, in like 2011, 2012. It sounds like you're not going to stop anytime soon. This sounds like the... I mean, when you were doing special effects, were you thinking like, I don't know how long... Like, yeah. you, you sort of stumbled into it, and yeah. it's, you sounds like, you, you know, you were working in sort of a competitive mm-hmm. field, but... I don't know the vibe I'm getting, correct me if I'm wrong, is like, yeah. you didn't know how long you'd be doing. Is that right? Well, in many ways, I I tend to move on when I feel I've topped out, mm-hmm. where there are some things where it's a game of dead men's shoes, and you have to last in the industry if you really want to be in a choice position. And I looked at my time in the effects industry, and it was like, I learned a bunch. I'm I'm good. And I tried, I tried to move on to something else. And maybe it's because I was, you know, I'm an army brat and my, my dad, you know, moved from base to base everywhere when I was a kid that after a couple of years, I start looking at the horizon. So it could just be a natural proclivity to wander. But usually I hack until I sort of reach a place in the field where I, I feel like I know what I'm doing pretty well. And I want to move on to some place where I don't know what I'm doing and I'm making a lot of mistakes and I'm learning a lot. Mm-hmm. And in this field, there's so little material on the ground. I feel like I'm building new stuff that people just haven't tried yet every day. And I get to be the one learning that. And by trying to open stuff up, I also get to share it. Cool. Super. I mean, that's just, so it sounds like you're, you don't see that. You're not looking for the rise in this soft robot thing. It seems like you're here for a while, right? So far, it makes me feel stupid every day. That's so. cool. That's a good thing, right? Like, that's so satisfying. Like, yeah. you like learning like that every day. How can people who are interested in learning more about it find out more about you, follow what you're doing, yeah. follow your work, all that stuff? Yeah. Well, all my personal stuff is uh, at GiantEye, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Flickr, um, GiantEye. Um, the company. EYE or I? EYE. Okay. Um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, the site is uh, superreleaser, all one word, uh, .com. Superreleaser is my company, and if you have problems that involve robots that need to be a little bit softer, let me know. And you, you can find your contact info at superreleaser. Where do you yeah. come up with the name superreleaser? Uh, it's a biology term that uh, means an artificial something that does nature's job better than nature. Uh, mm. What's an example of that? So, um, quick example, uh, so baby chicks uh, peck, uh, seagull has babies, they hatch, uh, they peck at their mother's beak and she vomits delicious food all over them. Uh, circle I of life. Nature is beautiful. So they peck at a certain rate. You can actually measure it. Uh, you can measure, you know, pecks per minute and you can actually create an artificial mom. Their eyesight is terrible. You can create an artificial mom that essentially looks like a bowling pin and test it to figure out what gets the most pecks and actually a super elongated 
seagull head bowling pin shape that's bright white with red bands, super high contrast, get them to peck about 30% faster than they peck at their own mothers. So that would, that means, why do I want that? <laughs> like, what, what's that do for me? So the, the sort of lesson you take away from that is you can actually, the, the biology down deep in there is trying to do things not based off of what's like present in nature, but actually off of triggers. Right. So you've got triggers that are trying to, to do and act in various ways, and you can artificially generate stimulus, you can artificially generate environments that evoke a behavior or that change what the organism is doing in a much stronger than, way than nature ever could. And that's the theory behind like people love candy bars and things like that. So that is... The, the, the pecking is not so much a practical thing I need as, uh, <laughs> as an interesting illustration of the kind of things we can do with science. Yes. And I guess uh, the I should be pimping my book. I have a, yeah, which I, book? The book is Make Soft Robots, um, published by Make Magazine, and it's going to be coming out early 2017. Cool. Well, let me know when that is up, and I'm sure uh, I'll mention here and Twitter and all that stuff because I'm sure people will want to hear about it. Yeah, they can make their own gripper. Thank you so much for coming over, talking robots, playing with robots, the whole thing. Thank you so much. Let me start off this outro with a quick Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin fact check, fact check. The film Bicentennial Man was not based on a book by Philip K. Dick, as I asserted earlier in the episode. It is in fact based on a book by Isaac Asimov. If you have a sci-fi movie and it's based on a book and you're not sure who wrote that book, uh, one of those two is usually a pretty good guess, but I happen to have guessed wrong. This episode, as if that's the only factual error that ever came up on the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show. That's the only one I, I've ever caught. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to my guest, Matthew. Super fun episode. And welcome to a new year of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin show. Uh, of course, uh, if you're just catching up on the program, everything you need to know is at JeffRubin, JeffRubinShow.com, including links to my Twitter, my Facebook, and uh, pretty much every episode. I'm, I'm going to go past pretty much. I'm just going to say every episode of this show uh, available there for free. Go check it out. Let me know who you want to hear in the show in the future, and maybe I'll see you there. But if not, I'll be back in two weeks, and I'll see you there. <laughs>